VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Hey, it's Akshat. I'll be going to COP28 in Dubai later this month. I'd love to find a way to answer the many questions you may have of the United Nations Climate Conference. Check out the show notes for details on how to send us your questions. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatrati. This week, reduce, reuse, remove. The sad reality is that even though the world has clear climate goals, it was late in starting to do something about them. That's why meeting these goals will not just mean an end to dumping greenhouse gas emissions, but also undoing some of that damage by drawing down carbon dioxide from the air. That's what we are going to talk about today. This is the second in a series that looks at the state of carbon capture and carbon removal technologies. Last week, I talked to Emily Grubert. She's a professor at Notre Dame University, and we talked about the potential and limits of technologies that trap emissions before they exit a smokestack. That type of point source carbon capture is expected to do the heavy lifting as the world gets close to net zero by 2050. But as we get closer to that date, which is only 27 years from now, net zero models say that carbon removal technologies will have to kick into gear. The International Energy Agency suggests the world needs 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide removed from the air by 2050. Currently, we draw down less than 10,000 tons each year. I think it's really indisputable right now that we will overrun our climate safety barriers. And because of that, we must be able to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. You can't have net zero without a negative. The science is clear. Industrial carbon removal is a necessary part of our climate toolbox. Point source carbon capture is cheaper than carbon removal. It costs less than $60 a ton to stop CO2 from entering the atmosphere, whereas it costs 10 times as much to pull it back down from the air. If carbon removal is to play a meaningful role in reaching climate goals, the cost has to come down to about $100 a ton. That's how much European companies pay currently for every ton of CO2 pollution they put out. We're at a point where avoiding emissions into the atmosphere is no longer enough. This is my guest today, Jennifer Wilcox, a professor of chemical engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. She is currently on leave from that position to oversee the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the U.S. Department of Energy. The U.S. government has devoted billions of dollars to scaling carbon capture technology, and it is now funding carbon removal projects. I wanted to ask Jen about the U.S. strategy for getting carbon removal out of the research phase, what happens if we don't hit the price points we need, and why for once it was private industry that took the lead on developing this clean technology. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
Let's start with how you got to run the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. Sure. So back in 2020, uh, I was approached and asked uh, if I would be interested in coming into the new administration and overseeing the work in the Office of Fossil Energy at that time. And so I had to learn a little bit about what that meant. And uh, my background is in chemical engineering and getting excited about how we separate things like CO2, whether it's from you know, a power plant or whether it's from a cement plant or maybe from the atmosphere, which is a lot more difficult to do. Back in 2012, I did write a textbook on carbon capture. And the really the reason for me of doing that is that I felt that there was a lack of human capital in this space that were educated in a way that could help to contribute in a meaningful approach to helping us to making sure that we have this in our toolkit as we are trying to achieve net zero goals. And so when I came into the position, one of the asks was, how can we reconcile investments in this space with climate goals? So in the first year, we reorganized our entire office. And we added two key words, carbon management, to the office because that's a big part of what we do. Why does having those extra two words, having a sort of a new brand, so to speak, matter? Well, because we're at a point where avoiding emissions into the atmosphere is no longer enough. And I think, you know, previously when we were only fossil energy, before this administration, I think the perspective was more about how do we make sure that everybody has access to energy in the United States? Not just access to energy, but that that energy is affordable and it's clean. And carbon management more broadly has another aspect, right? It's not just about avoiding emissions into the atmosphere. It's about recognizing that the accumulated CO2 in the atmosphere is mostly also from legacy fossil. And so recognizing that that should be our mandate too, right? As we look at carbon dioxide removal, tackling the accumulated CO2 that's in the atmosphere, that it makes sense that the Office of Fossil Energy is tackling that one because most of it was sourced from hydrocarbons that we got deep underground. In the past decade, we have started talking about carbon removal, which is, as you said, taking down the legacy emissions that already exist in the atmosphere because we've left the climate problem so late that to be able to meet our climate goals, we are going to have to do some of that carbon removal. And so somebody coming cold to this subject, how would you separate what is traditional carbon capture technology versus what is an important and multifaceted way in which you could actually remove carbon dioxide from the air? Yeah. So, you know, how do you separate? We have been also just trying to keep these tools separate as well because they're so easy to conflate. So if you're looking at a point source and you're retrofitting it with a carbon capture technology, you're avoiding the emissions from ever entering the atmosphere. We recognize in the United States, there's a concept of committed emissions. A lot of power plants, you know, were built 30 plus years ago and they'll probably retire, especially as we, you know, squeeze our wedge of dependence on fossil energy down. And we have so much opportunity in the United States for renewables but there are going to still be some units that are going to continue to operate on fossil for the you know, unforeseeable future. And what we need to think about is that 
it is cheaper and easier from an economic perspective to retrofit the units that are going to persist because they're new, coming online today in some cases. So there's going to be some amount of carbon capture and storage that's going to be point source. And the reason why that's important is because now it reduces the burden of carbon removal. When we think of carbon removal, you know, we all use it so loosely now because we recognize that we have to take CO2 out of the accumulated pool in the atmosphere. All climate models tell us we need it, but not we need it because we're not going to do deep decarbonization fast enough. We actually need it for truly hard to decarbonize sectors. We need it for the agricultural sector. We need it for aspects of shipping and aviation that are truly hard to decarbonize. And so if we look at our emissions in the United States, you know, roughly five and a half to six gigatons of CO2 every year. And when you do the bottom up calculation of thinking about what's truly, truly hard to decarbonize, it still adds up to a little over a gigaton. So that's carbon removal. That's the role of carbon removal is to counterbalance truly hard to decarbonize sectors, not to counterbalance sectors by which we have technologies that we can decarbonize. When you're talking gigatons, you mean billion tons, right? Yes. And when you say truly hard to decarbonize, what's the hard part? Is it just we don't know how to do it or it's too expensive or it's politically impossible? What is hard? Hard means it's not ready today. So it's technologically not ready today. Well, so technologically not ready. Yeah, it's at a R&D phase, maybe not at the demonstration phase yet. Or there's other reasons too, right? So it could also be that when you look at the aviation sector, we get very excited about sustainable aviation fuel. But the question is, is it going to do it all, right? Sustainable biomass is a feedstock. Do we have enough? When do we start competing for food? And even an aspect of sustainable aviation is also downstream use of CO2, CO2 with clean hydrogen for synthetic fuels. That could play a role. But the question is, are we going to be able to close that wedge quick enough? And so it's really unclear even how much carbon removal we're going to need to offset the truly hard to decarbonize sectors. And if we don't invest today, we're just not going to even have it available to us in time. Before we discuss the challenge of doing this at scale, let's look at what types of technologies are available. It's one thing that keeps surprising me. Point source carbon capture typically does just one thing. A chemical process separates out carbon dioxide from a mixture of gases before they go into a smokestack. Carbon removal can piggyback on that technology. Swiss startup Climeworks uses the same chemical process, but instead of industrial gases, it uses air as the input. However, carbon removal technologies can also get weird. I wrote about an Australian startup called InterEarth, which takes trees and then buries them in highly salty soils. The trees capture CO2 from the air and the salty soils stop it from degrading. Thus, carbon removed. Another idea is to use waste from agriculture, turn it into a carbonaceous black goo, not unlike oil, then sink that deep underground. That's what US startup Charm Industrial does. And there are tens of other wacky ideas available. It's up to investors and governments to back the ones that they think are scalable. Carbon removal startups have received hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. Most of that has come from private industry. The Frontier Fund, led by the payments company Stripe, 
has promised to buy $1 billion of carbon removal. Bill Gates also funds many of these startups, and he pays for his own carbon removal at a price of $600 a ton. Now, a lot of the green technologies that got started, started through government R&D. You know, very early solar research happened in labs. Then it happened in some private industry. Same thing with batteries. Carbon removal technologies, however, have had a different route. A lot of the scale-up that has happened in the past decade has been driven by private industry. Even before the government stepped in, you know, we had a billion-dollar fund launched last year that is private industry trying to push carbon removal. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, we've seen a lot of corporations that have announced net zero pledges that got some momentum in the space. And the reason is they're recognizing just within their own framework of their organization that they can control for the most part those scope one emissions, right? Even scope two, where they're accessing their electricity from. But when you look at scope three, cement, steel, paper, aviation, food even, some of these are very difficult to decarbonize sectors in terms of a company that wants to reach net zero. They can't control those supply streams and they don't exist today in a low carbon way. And so the only way to achieve net zero for those groups was to have carbon removal as a tool to counterbalance the scope three emissions in their portfolio. And so, you know, you started to see a lot of interest in some of the forest offset programs. And then the wonderful thing is, is that these companies also have really thoughtful leadership and recognizing when you dig into those nature-based offsets that are available, that were not very expensive, that there's not a lot of durability in the removal. In fact, a lot of uncertainty because in some of those nature-based approaches too, you see a lot of reversal, carbon sinks that we rely on, even in our climate models, becoming carbon sources with forest fires. And so that started to bring more attention to the very few players several years ago in terms of the technological approaches to removing carbon from the atmosphere and representing a durable approach to carbon removal. In a way, you are saying there's the benevolent corporation that is thinking about climate in a sensible way and realizing, oh, we have goals to hit those goals. We're going to have to do so many things, reduce our emissions first, but then what remains we have to remove. And because offsets, nature-based offsets haven't worked out, have been caught either in a wildfire or in greenwashing, we need to find more durable ways to do it. There is the non-benevolent version of the corporation, which is it's there to maximize profits, it is there to protect its reputation, and it is making sure that through these small investments here or there, which sound like big numbers given the relative scale of the industry, they are sort of getting away with it. They are dealing the inevitable, which is to reduce their emissions really drastically this decade, but instead telling you, we're doing the right thing, we're going to invest in the right solutions. How do we handle the sort of moral hazard problem that carbon removal technologies throw at you, which is, yes, science says it's needed, it's good to invest in them, but aren't we using it as an excuse to not reduce emissions today? Yeah, I saw that too. And so one of the things that we've been doing is, as you know, and we'll talk probably about the infrastructure law 
dollars in a little bit, but there's dollars within that legislation that allows us to invest in the point source capture, decarbonizing facilities, and just focusing on industry for a minute. When you look at scope three emissions of some of these groups, cement, paper, steel, it's a lot cheaper to invest in decarbonizing those industries than it is to use carbon removal to offset. But the reality is, is that CO2 capture has not been demonstrated on those facilities yet. So we have the Petronova example. We have another example where we can make hydrogen through steam methane reforming with carbon capture. We certainly know how to take CO2 out of the fermentation process of bioethanol. So we have some great examples to point to where we've tested that technology and it works for those cases, but we still need to demonstrate it on a blast furnace at a steel plant and at a paper mill and things like that. And so we have funding to be able to do that. After the break, we get into the numbers. How much does the U.S. spend on carbon removal? And what happens if we don't get the price down to $100 a ton? Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. So let's just talk numbers. The government programs and the money that's being spent. Let's just start with the big programs that are in play after you got into office. So here we've been talking about carbon removal, so I'll start there. So we have $3.5 billion to develop, build out four direct air capture hubs, each capable of removing a million tons of CO2 per year. And we recently awarded two demonstrations those two hubs will back two different types of technologies. First, we'll see carbon engineering working with Occidental Petroleum to trap CO2 using liquid chemicals. The other one will have Heirloom working with Climeworks doing the same, but with solid absorbance instead. And then what's also exciting is recognizing that there's just such a portfolio of technologies at different stages of readiness today. And we wanted to make sure that we're also investing in all those ideas and across the United States. And so we also um, awarded roughly 20 projects at Concept in front-end engineering design at $100 million collectively, recognizing that these are, 
these are systems that are going to be outside and in the elements, right? So how are they going to perform based upon different conditions across the United States? And what energy resources are they coupling to in order to maximize carbon removal? The energy equation is stark. Removing one ton of carbon dioxide using direct air capture can take anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 kilowatt hours of energy. That is roughly between four to eight months of electricity that I'm consuming with my wife in a London flat. It's a lot of electricity. How are we going to justify requiring the build-out of so much energy infrastructure that we already are doing to try and replace fossil fuel energy infrastructure, but we are going to require even more in addition? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we have to think about these first-of-a-kind projects as responsible projects that we can do in a meaningful way that can serve as examples for the nth of a kind. And one example is citing in a way that you're not competing for low carbon energy that would otherwise go for decarbonizing fossil power, for instance. That needs to be prioritized. Now, there are various estimates of the cost of carbon removal. One from Howard Herzog at MIT, who's been a longtime researcher in this space, uh, comes between $600 and $1,000 a ton. One from David Keith at Howard, who also is the founder of Carbon Engineering, which is one of the companies that got the award for a direct air capture hub, alongside others, has put it between $300 and $425 a ton. The goal eventually is to try and get it all down to $100 a ton, sort of a realistic number. That's about how much the carbon price is right now here in Europe, for example. How realistic is that aim? Because, yes, we've seen cost declines in green technologies for solar, for wind, for batteries, for electric cars. But they have come because of what is unit economics. They make millions of the same thing again and again, and they reduce the price. In direct air capture or carbon removal, you could get some unit economics, but we're still not talking millions of them. So how realistic do you think is the price target that we have for carbon removal? So the idea with the carbon negative shot, and that that is what we're investing in at DOE, and not just our office, but ARPA-E is part of it, Office of Science and EERE, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. But our four offices have come together to invest our base appropriations across R&D to be able to get to first-of-a-kind demonstrations. So in that space, we are estimating that if we invest and get to the scale of millions of tons of removal per year, once we hit millions of tons per year removals, we will get down that cost curve with a target of $100 per ton. But to be honest, we don't know that until we build, you know, more thousands of tons of removal. You know, that's where we're at today. We need to get three more zeros in. We need to get to millions. And I think at that millions, once we're actually operating that facility and we are transparent and true about the cost, we'll learn from that experience, right? If it's $600 a ton, if it's $300 a ton. And then the idea, though, is to not just stop there. The idea is to usher a new generation of direct air capture technologies to be able to be on the pipeline of more demonstrations. It may not be that one, right, that first one that they all look like. There are a lot of things in a net zero scenario that we have to think about, and we can't always have faith in all those things. We 
can't have faith in politics. It may swing here or there. We can't have faith in economics and finance. It may swing here or there. Technology is one that we can have a little more faith in because we understand the science, we know some of the history, etc. But say we don't reach the $100 per ton target number, what happens to carbon removal then? I think it depends too on what are the other options that are cheaper. We talked about what truly hard to decarbonize means. So when we get to the point we cross that, I won't call it a finish line, it's more of like a, a water station stop or something. Like when we get there at that millions of tons of removal, because we still need three more zeros to get to a billion or a gigaton, right? So it's like once we get there, if we're only, say, at millions of tons of removal and we haven't hit the $100 mark and we look at what we're trying to counterbalance, we might have to need more policy to further incentivize direct air capture. I don't think it's the policy that's going to get us to the finish line. I think it's the policy that's going to probably get us to the millions of tons of removal. And that sort of speaks to the importance of having a portfolio approach to try and tackle this problem, that you're not betting on one technology or one horse or even one company to get us there. Now, if you were to think about the criticisms that come your way, for doing the work that you're doing. What do you think is the biggest criticism of your own work? Maybe an unreasonable one and maybe a reasonable one. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do feel right now a lot of criticisms in this space, in part because maybe of the version 1.0 of what carbon management looked like. And, and I think we have so many solutions that we are leaning on fossil energy companies to be there with us as kind of part of the solution. But at the same time, they haven't always been good stewards or good players on their word. And so it makes it really difficult. I think what's going to be critical, though, is working with that energy community and being able to help that energy community be able to see a path. When you look at the downstream management of CO2, the only way of kind of disposing of CO2 that scales with our emissions is deep injection in geologic formations. We can, we can convert it to synthetic fuels and chemicals. We can put it in our built environment and buildings and things like that. And all those things will be wonderful. But at the end of the day, it needs to go deep underground where it came from. And the community, the, the workforce that is skilled to do that are the same ones that produced oil and gas and coal to begin with. And so it's that workforce, it's that engineering. And so you may have a direct air capture hub, you may have a carbon capture project, and you say, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna partner with the fossil fuel industry. That's great. But at the end of the day, to dispose of that CO2 in a meaningful way, you're gonna call on the expertise we can get to millions of tons, but how are we going to get to gigatons? Are we going to rely on taxpayer dollars again? Or maybe we can get the energy companies to step up and help us get to scale because they've got the workforce, they have the engineers, they have the expertise, and they could make up that gap. That was a great conversation. Carbon capture is a complicated subject. And so the work that you do at the Department of Energy is enabling both clarity while it's pushing the technology. So thank you for your time. Thank you. 
carbon removal technologies sometimes get overhyped. So it's important to remember that the first thing to do is to reduce emissions. Thank you for listening to Zero. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you write a review, I might read it on a future episode. Share this episode with a friend or someone who hates chemistry. You can get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Kira Bindrim, Brian Khan and Michelle Ma. I'm Akshatrati, back next week.